There's not a lot of glory in being an electoral college loser. In the history of the United States Constitution, only five men have been on the losing side of an electoral college count and then later gone on to become president of the United States. In the modern era, it's even more rare, the last man being Richard Nixon in 1969. And while some also rans, as the Library of Congress rather ignobly refers to them as, do retain some historical significance following their loss, a lot of them kind of fall into the background of American history. In fact, just this year, one of the highlights of also rans in pop culture appeared in the HBO series Succession. Now, I will let you know, no spoiler in this, but part of season four featured character Logan Roy reciting a poem of also rans. Here we go. Go, go. Bush. Is he doing the, the, wait, the losers list? Yeah. Mondale, Carter, <laughs> a Ford, not a Lincoln for me. <laughs> Hippie George Humphrey. Saint now, as a teacher of American government, I could talk about Dick any the of these characters. Wilkie, I love Landon, my also rants. But there's Alice one name Smith in particular I want to focus David on. Cox, that one. Taft, Cox. Brian, James Martin Middleton Aaron. Cox. James Cox ran for president in the 1920 U.S. presidential election. As part of the campaign, Cox participated in the Nation's Forum. It was an effort to preserve the voices of prominent Americans at this time, and obviously a presidential candidate was pretty prominent. He spoke on issues related to the 1920 presidential election. This was an election immediately after World War I. These are fateful times. Organized government has a definite duty all over the world. The house of civilization is to be put in order. The supreme issue of the century is before us. And the nation that halts and delays is playing with fire. Ohio, a cradle of presidents, was his home state. And it seemed like he might have a shot. Except his opponent was Warren G. Harding, also of Ohio. And he wound up losing in the widest spread in a popular vote. Since James Monroe ran unopposed in 1820, and that margin remains a modern record, he lost by 26.2%. Another interesting footnote about this election is that his opponent, Warren G. Harding, would win, obviously, but would die in office and would be replaced by his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, meaning both men ascended to the presidency. Cox's vice presidential nominee also became president. That man's name... Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Of the four people on the main ticket, only Cox would not become president. As I mentioned earlier, most people that run for president and lose just kind of recede into the background. But Cox had a day job, and a rather high-profile one. And that's where James Cox and Miami start to intersect. Because Cox was a newspaper publisher. And after absorbing the blows of the 1920 election... He just went back to work. In 1923, he bought Miami's oldest daily newspaper, the Miami Metropolis. He renamed it the Miami Daily News Metropolis and decided to build for it a headquarters. That headquarters would come to be known as the Miami News Tower. We know today as Freedom Tower, the most iconic building in Miami's skyline. And that building opened today this day in Miami history, July 26th, 1925. 
And to talk about it, I've called upon the man that I consider to be the foremost expert in Miami history, Dr. Paul S. George, the resident historian at History Miami. The high times, the low times, all in the nightlife. Are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am truly honored uh, to be to have you listening uh, today, wherever you are listening. And I'm even more honored to have on the line today, Dr. Paul George. Uh, Dr. George is the resident historian at History Miami. Uh, but honestly, I just consider him the foremost expert in Miami history we have going. Uh, so Dr. George, thank you so much for your time and, and your effort uh, in documenting, documenting and sharing Miami's history. Thank you, Matt. And it's great to be here with you. So our focus today is on uh, the Freedom Tower as we know it now. Um, but this building had a whole other life. Um, and, and its life was as a headquarters for a newspaper. And, and what was the newspaper in Miami for much of its early history. Uh, but before we get into the building, I want to talk a little bit about the man who made it happen. Uh, and that's James Cox. Uh, and I was wondering if if you could tell us a little bit about... James Cox and his his interesting pathway to Miami. Well, Cox was really a heavyweight. Uh, he was governor of Ohio. He owned a chain of newspapers, uh, and that would grow over time, uh, even beyond uh, the era of his building the Miami News Tower. Um, he would also pick up radio stations. In fact, uh, the tower hosted uh, WIOD for twenty years from the mid thirties to the mid fifties, but. Um, he was a guy that, um, like a lot of people, he came to Miami for a vacation or vacations at the outset of the 1920s, and he ran into another well-connected guy, Carl Fisher, uh, two Midwesterners, and uh, Fisher was developing Miami Beach, and uh, you know he was a very wealthy man. He was one of the pioneers of the automotive industry in terms of sales and all, and uh, a road builder such as the Dixie Highway, the Lincoln Highway, the creator of the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. And 
so they knew each other and uh and fisher was great in that he uh liked to sort of focus these well-to-do miami visitors into something constructive besides picking up a suntan and enjoying the warm waters of the atlantic ocean off of miami beach and so he turned to Cox and he said, uh, Jim, why don't you invest in something here? And uh, the implication was that, you know, it'll give a deeper meaning to your presence here. And Cox being a newspaper man logically thought in terms of newspapers. Uh, at that point, the Miami Metropolis, a.k.a. the Miami Daily Metropolis, sometimes called the Daily Miami Metropolis, had been in business since it was a weekly uh, in 1896. It was Miami's first newspaper. It began publishing on Fridays, uh, again, weekly, beginning 15th, 1890. Uh, it, had a, it had an office downtown and uh, on Flagler. And Cox bought it, but he likely said to himself, this, uh, this building just isn't what I want for a newspaper. I'm really going to make into a, you know, a dynamite paper. And so he picked up a parcel of land for a princely sum of money. Uh, one source has it at over a million dollars on North Bayshore Drive, which, um, as he and others knew, <clears throat> this is in the early 1920s, was destined to become a grand boulevard into Miami from points north, today's Biscayne Boulevard. And um, he picked up a vast amount of land that is a full city block. Much of that block at one time had hosted the first full-blown railroad station for Florida East Coast Railway, Flagler's Railroad. Uh, it operated out of that site, or at least a portion of that site, from 1897 to 1912. And um, Cox hired a, um, he was a very hands-on guy, so he had a hand in all this stuff. He hired uh, one of the great architectural firms, especially a great hotel designing firm, Schultz and Weaver out of New York. They did the Waldorf Astoria and a lot of subsequent buildings in South Florida, like the Roney Plaza and uh, the Breakers and the Biltmore and Coral Gables. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the prevailing, or I should say the up-and-coming theme at that time in terms of architecture was a Mediterranean style. And that can be interpreted in many different ways. It can be an Italian Mediterranean, such as Miami Shores. It can be a Spanish Mediterranean, such as Carl Gables. And um, he had them design uh, a building of that scale and design, sometimes described as platter-esque, uh, sort of a medieval Spanish Mediterranean look influenced heavily by the Moorish occupation of Spain for hundreds of years, especially in the South. And um, they, they broke ground for the Miami News Tower in uh, 1924, and it was completed by the spring of 1925 and uh, amid a bunch of hoopla, uh, justifiably so. And uh, the news began to operate from there at that point. It's really interesting for the listeners at home. If you want to do a Google search, and you, you probably know what the Biltmore looks like and what Freedom Tower looks like, but do a Google search for the, the, the Roney Plaza in Miami Beach, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's the Biltmore and there's Freedom Tower. You can definitely tell uh, the, the particular uh, uh, influence there. Um, so you, you mentioned Cox and Fisher being two kind of Midwestern guys. I think it's so interesting when you look back at Miami's history, you see such a Midwestern influence. When you look at the rival paper, um, the Miami Herald at the time, it's owned by Frank Schutz, who's, a, who's another Midwestern um, fellow, and Flagler himself, you know, born in New York, but wind, winds up kind of making his hay in Ohio. Um, it, it, what, what, can we, what can we glean from that? How much these Midwesterners kind of come down and, and look to really make the town? 
Well, I think what we can glean, first of all, is the allure of Greater Miami as a tourist attraction. And you want to get away from those harsh Midwestern winters or New York winters, whatever the case might be. Uh, this is a place to come. Carl Fisher, again, Midwestern, he actually uh, more or less grew up in Kentucky, but he really struck it rich in Indianapolis. Um, Carl Fisher would build buildings um, in part designed by, for example, the, uh, the Nautilus Hotel or Mount Sinai Medical Center is today by Schultz and Weaver uh, that were very alluring. So you had the ocean, uh, you, you had a beautiful hotel or hotels, you had many hotels, a flamingo among others, and this is a place you wanted to be. And so you had a lot of these guys there and they would help build a millionaire's row, these great industrialists and to some degree financiers, on Collins Avenue, beginning in 1916, that millionaire's row was still around. That is, these exquisite homes of these millionaires who came from elsewhere, a lot of them from the Midwest, and it, it lasted into the early post-World War II period. Uh, and what, what Fisher did, which was so notable, I think, was he wanted to sort of um, harness their energy and their expertise, and so while they're down here, let's do things that are meaningful in addition to your vacation land. And so um, he was able to entice them into doing, uh, you know, into getting involved in businesses. He also was part of the Committee of 100, which was, uh, he was a moving force in that, uh, which um, brought these wealthy people into a group that also um, met as a club, but also gathered money for charitable causes. Early on, they were, um, the Committee of 100 were gathering uh, funds from members uh, and others to fight cancer. And we're talking now, you know, 80 years ago, uh, 80 plus years ago. So um, this was a place. Uh, it was a it was a premier vacation spot on the East Coast of the United States. And if you're going to have all these heavyweights here, a lot of these guys were restless. I mean, they continue to want to invest and get involved in things. And that's how people like Cox became even more deeply involved in greater Miami. And you mentioned the idea of the the desire to invest, particularly among the the, the heavyweights, the 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 makers and shakers of the town. And it's such a young town at this time. You know, incorporation happens in in eighteen ninety six. It's only a few decades. It's really almost like you know when you look at. I, I've talked with some friends about this before. The idea of when you made money in in New York or Chicago or, or wherever else, you know you were new money, um, and you were trying to break into the social class uh, that kind of ran things. But money wasn't the only determining factor. In Miami, there was new, there was no old money. <laughs> you know, it was the town was so new that you could really make yourself into a, a titan of the town, a titan of the city. Uh, and I, I think that that's so important to remember. So so when you look at Miami in 23, 24, 25. This is the hyper boom. This isn't just the boom. This is the hyper boom. And and everyone's an investor. And, and how much do you think that drives folks like Cox to go even bigger when everyone and their mother seems to be in the real estate game? Well, you, you really hit it on the head, Matt. And I know that you're studying deeply the boom of the mid-20s. That is probably my favorite era in Miami history. Uh, just to digress for a second. Uh, when I was a graduate student at Florida State, embarking on a dissertation that uh, was ultimately entitled "Criminal Justice in Miami, 1896-1925," I, I went through everything I get my hands on, including including daily newspapers and um, 
I was so enthralled with that boom story. You know, I later wrote about it and what have you, but I remember as part of the research for that, I interviewed informally a buddy of mine's dad who was a very prominent attorney, an elderly gentleman, but very sharp. And I said, and he graduated from Miami Senior High in 1925, the peak year of the boom. And I said, uh, did you as a young guy uh, participate in the boom? He said, we all participated in the boom. I said, did you know any binder boys? And these were these more or less professional speculators, in this case in real estate. And he said, I was a binder boy meaning that everybody was involved at age 17 he was involved so you're you're so right about that it was just it was a sweeping time it was an exciting time in Miami history and Cox not only built the tower but I think he caught the fever of the boom too for example everything was you know world record this the biggest thing this he put out a 504 page newspaper in late July of 1896 um, that was said to be the world's largest newspaper. We don't know if it was or not, but I happen to have, incidentally, an original copy of that newspaper. Oh, man, that's yes. so cool. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. It's very fragile, but it's the entire copy of it. Wow, that's so. that's actually a perfect segue because I want to talk specifically about that paper. Um, listeners of this uh, show... Uh, we'll make note that last year, uh, this episode also dropped on July 26th, and the focus of the episode was actually that specific newspaper, because it has, to me, my, my I, I'm currently a public school teacher in Miami-Dade County, but for a time, my degree's in journalism, and I've always been fascinated by newspapers and history, and I've always been fascinated by this particular newspaper, because it has, to me, one of the craziest front pages of any newspaper ever. Um, because it has on the front the death of the mayor, uh, but it's not even the headline <laughs> because William Jennings Bryan died on the same day. Is there any awareness, and this is very minute of a detail, but is there any awareness of what it was like making that paper? Because, I mean, it's insane, this front page where the the, the mayor of the city dies and it's not even the top story. The actual manufacturing and, and journalisming that goes into making this paper? Well, I'll tell you, Matt, and, and, and you obviously are researching very deeply this great, great topic. Uh, I wish I was just starting and getting into it just now for the first time because it's so exciting. But um, that boom, when this paper came out in late July of 1925, this 504-page newspaper with some color to it, uh, X number of sections. There must have been 20 sections to this paper. Um, Miami was within weeks of probably reaching its peak in that boom in terms of inflated uh, land values, in terms of buying and selling real estate. And so that was really the story uh, more than anything else. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that one of the front page articles was about the Shoreland Corporation, which was developing Miami Shores, getting ready to build a 20-story building in downtown Miami. And what's interesting about that is the Shoreland Arcade, which was eventually that building, is about three stories. Hmm. Uh, that, that is, that boom started slowing down and then collapsed in 26. And the Shoreland Corporation went out of business within about a year of that. They just weren't able to build that building. Same thing happened with the Central Baptist Church. Um, which is just across the Miami Days Wilson campus. They were going to build a multi-story building on top of the church. But when that boom collapsed, and it, it collapsed precipitously, you know, they couldn't do it. They didn't have the wherewithal to do it. 
So, um, yeah, the mayor's death was one thing, but the big story, of course, was what was going on with buying and selling and building. Yeah, it's it's to to give you a sense of of kind of how the news moved on that day for the folks at home. Uh, there was an extra cover and a main news cover, and the the headline on that main news cover was Flagler to have twenty story building. Uh, and again, so much of the front page is about uh, building and construction. Um, but the, 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 the extra page was about Brian and Henderson, uh, which is just crazy. It's such a crazy day. So the building is opened. It's this grand triumph, uh, of architecture and of news in Miami and, and really, uh, kind of a symbol of, of Miami trying to really stand out among cities in America. And, and as you alluded to, um, within the next few months, the gears start to slow. So, you know, some, some muck starts to enter the gears, even in 25, before we get into 26. And then in 26, we have the, the, the omnishambles of all the kind of catastrophe that happens in Miami. How is Cox and how is the metropolis really able to weather this slowdown? Um, because we would assume most people that kind of build this extravagantly, you know, the, 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 the pride goeth before the fall, but the metropolis didn't collapse it wasn't this giant uh uh you know burden on them they were in that building for a few more decades they certainly were and my uh, quasi educated speculation on that is is that uh, cox took resources from other investments of his and other businesses he had in order to buoy that and uh, and let me also in a sort of an indirect way answer that question too the miami herald was averaging during the heights of the boom say in 1925 especially the summer somewhere between about 80 and 100 pages for its daily edition uh, if you look at the Miami Herald in June of 1926, when the boom was over, the boom was over before the hurricane of 26 hit. But if you look at it in June of 26, it's averaging now between about 18 and 20 pages. Why? They've lost the advertisements of all these developers and these speculators. They're gone. The boom is over. So Cox was blessed, as I guess a lot of newspaper publishers at the time were, with uh, enough money to fall back on to sort of get them through those hard times. But you actually have an economic depression here. Uh, in the, with the collapse of the boom and in the wake of the hurricane, that segues into the national depression. And so you have a constricted paper in terms of size and all, but uh, as you've indicated, it does get through that because papers are paramount for dispersing knowledge at that time. Uh, you know, people need it. If you're going to give a, bu- a bunch of stuff uh, because you're out of a job or you're confined to a part-time job or whatever because of this economic crisis, um, I think one of the last things you'd want to give up uh, would be your reading. Uh, and so people kind of held on to it for a while. Uh, you know, it all changed after the war with television and the fact that you didn't really need that afternoon newspaper. The news was already out there. Uh, but for those few decades after the boom, um, the news continued. And it's interesting that we're talking now because I'm reading a marvelous biography of Bill Baggs, who was a great editor of the Miami News from 1957 till his death in 69. And uh, it's just so fascinating um, earlier, I read a uh, an autobiography that his wife, who's long deceased now, sent me about ten years ago, fifteen years ago, on uh, her and Bill, and you know their story and his story, and just great stuff. Um, I've been friends almost all my life with the daughter of probably the first woman editorial co- cartoonist in America, Ann Morgan. 
who was part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team for the news in 1939 when they got after this really corrupt city commission. <laughs> so um, it did make it through, but it would certainly lose uh, its circulation battle, if you will, with the Miami Herald clearly by World War II and probably even sometime before then. The Herald just brought more resources and... And they approached things differently when World War II came along. They uh, sacrificed some advertising for more news, and it seemed to work for them. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So by the 1950s, as you alluded to, World War II seems to be the big turning point in the, in the news story in Miami where the Herald becomes the, the top dog. And eventually the news and the Herald combine resources or at least combine buildings uh, where the Miami News is housed within the Miami Herald building, where the Herald building becomes the, the A architectural landmark right on Biscayne Bay. Um, and eventually Miami becomes a one-paper town, um, as it is today. Um, what, what do you think is the legacy of the news in that building? Again, I, as I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening know, that building takes on a second life um, when it becomes a, a home for Cuban refugee resettlement. Um, and basically becomes kind of the Ellis Island of Cuban Americans. Um, but b- before we get to that point, because uh, I think as we talked about before the episode, that's a- another episode for another day. Um, but in terms of the legacy of the news in that building, what do you think it is for Miami? Well, it just means so much. That building was, uh, before they used the word icon, was an iconic building. Everybody knew about the news. Even uh, ships would get their uh, points and all when they were out at sea by looking at the the beacon at the very top of it. Um, And and the building has actually grown in stature in recent years and decades because it's been restored. It's under restoration again. Um, It's part of Miami-Dade College which is a college that's taken in so many people that have left other countries, you know, looking for more freedom and more opportunities in America. Um, it's, it's everything. Uh, even though the news went out of business on December 31st, 88, the building hasn't gone out of business. And it just continues to take on new iterations. And, and again, it's very iconic uh, for this area. It's unique in its design. It was inspired by a great cathedral in Sevilla, Spain, which incidentally had been a Muslim mosque during the Moorish occupation of Spain and Sevilla. I've been in the building, even walked up to the top tower. You can do that's a circular sort of stairwell or masonry floor that takes you up to the top. And that was a real thrill to do that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just, it's Miami. And now that the centennial of the boom is at hand, I think we should really focus more and more on that great building because at one point that was the tallest building in Miami and was said to be, uh, when it opened in the spring of 1925, the tallest building in the southern United States, soon to be eclipsed by other buildings in Miami. But, hmm. uh, but there it was for a while. Yeah, it really remains, I think, an important... I think Miami is a city, even in the modern day, it's a city... We have our skyscrapers, and Lord knows we're building even taller ones now, but I think that building still defines our our our, our skyline. 
Um, it is the kind of the building that people are familiar with more than anything else. And I think that's really, really for a city that, and, and I know you know better than anyone else, for a city that doesn't always do a great job of preserving its history, um, I, the fact that that building is still standing and the fact that so much effort went into to really preserving it at a time when the news itself was going out of business in, in, in the late 1980s, um, I, I think it's really fantastic. And, and I, I really do look forward to uh, the, the, the renovations being completed uh, in time for the centennial. Uh, that's going to be a really special year in 2025. Very much so, Matt. Very much so. So I want to thank again you, Dr. George, again, for everything you do for our city and for our region, for Greater Miami and beyond. Um, and I want to thank you specifically for coming on with me today. It's a pleasure, Matt. I'm so glad we could do this. And it's a great building, and I'm honored to have been part of this uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I hope to be talking to you again soon. Now, I want to point out that we didn't go into great detail about what we now know as Freedom Tower's second life. And that is a kind of Miami-based Ellis Island for the Cuban community seeking refuge from the revolution after 1959. We will cover that on this podcast. We're going to save that for another day. Freedom Tower has such a long and rich history in our community, it seems silly to try to wrap it all up in just one episode. So don't be alarmed. We will be coming back to Freedom Tower again on this day. Uh, and in the meantime, though, I do want to thank a few very important people. First off, Dr. Paul S. George. Um, who is just an inspiration to me uh, and his work uh, on Miami. As the editor of History Miami's Journal, Tequesta, he has his fingerprints on all kinds of work about Miami over, over decades. Uh, but I do want to point you in particular towards a couple of pieces of his work. Uh, first off, uh, a favorite of mine, um, an early work that he collaborated on in the 1980s, Murder in Miami, kind of a, a, a cr an analysis of crime during the boom times in Miami of the 1920s and comparing it to the 1980s. Secondly, his book, A Guide to the History of Florida. He edited that book. Uh, it contains a number of historiographic essays uh, about the state. Um, and additionally, a book I was just kind of flipping through over the last couple of days, A Journey Through Time, uh, Pictorial History of South Dade, uh, obviously more focused on South Dade, Homestead, Florida City region, um, than the county at large, but just just really great pieces of work. If you're interested in Miami history, you can find those online. Um, I know a journey through time I was able to borrow from Miami-Dade County Public Library System, which is just fantastic. So I really do uh, commend to you uh, his work uh, so you can check it out. I also want to thank some very important people through Miami-Dade College and the Freedom Tower that were really essential for setting this all up. First off, uh, Maria Carla Chiquen. Uh, Jennifer Weinberg and Meredith Vey over there, and in particular, Sierra Mano, uh, who is my point person and really helpful and is actually a listener of the show and a follower on social media, which is fantastic. So if you're still listening, Sierra, hi, thank you. Um, we'll be in touch again soon, uh, I hope. Um, and lastly, as always, I want to thank you, uh, the listener, for supporting the show. Uh, there's a real focus of J July, late July on this show. It's now three years in a row we've done uh, the 25th or 26th, it's a heck of a time for Miami. Um, and so I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, we will be back next month with a new episode. I do encourage you to follow us on social media at This Day Miami Pod. Um, a lot of support on Instagram over the last couple of months, which has been great. Um, I hope you like it. Um, I hope you discover the show from there. Um, and I hope you stick with us. So um, besides that, thank you as always. And until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. The high times and low times, all in the